Good morning, church. Wonderful to be with you today. We are uh, beginning a a new little mini-series here, uh, about four weeks. Uh, We call Great Eight. The reason for this, I'm I'm thinking about, you know, kind of middle of summer, turbulent things always in the world. It's always good to kind of look to God for a refresher on reasons for hope. Uh, It's also helpful because that's part of our vision here, right? To help everybody that we have some sphere of influence with to find hope and live with purpose. We remind ourselves of that from time to time. And whenever I say that, remember, they're not not just words we throw out there. Hope is not an idea. It's a person. (laughs) Right? So we don't want them to find, like, some hopefulness. We want them to find the hope of the world, and it's the person of Jesus. And the purpose that we hope people find is not just some abstract purpose, but it's the purpose of the hope of the world. He gave us the purpose in the Great Commission to make disciples who make disciples. I thought it'd be helpful for us to take a few weeks and, and, and come to the place that people have come for centuries to hear one of the greatest statements of God's hope in all of Scripture. In fact, some people call Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at one chapter in the book of Romans. Some people call Romans chapter 8 the greatest chapter in the Bible. Now, I'm a preacher. It's hard for me to pick one, to be honest. And if somebody put a gun to my head, I would have to choose for me something in the Gospels. I want it to be like, I mean, Jesus is front and center in Romans 8, but it got to be Jesus. I'm at Luke 24, one of the resurrection stories. But again, by all accounts, for the last 2,000 years, one of the greatest chapters in Scripture is Romans chapter 8. Some of the quotes that you'll have on your walls, if you're that kind of a person, will often come from this. Some of the memory verses that we have, some of the greatest statements of promise of God, some of the greatest statements of our identity in Christ, it's an incredible chapter. So we're going to spend a month hearing words of God's hope in Romans chapter 8. The first part we're going to look at, if you have your Bibles, your devices, is Romans 8 verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you're in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life Because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies 
because of his spirit who lives in you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the most important questions that a spiritual community will ask again and again is the question, how do you live? Like, how do you actually live? I'm not talking about how does blood go through your veins and how does air go through your body. I'm talking about how do you fully live the life that you long for, the life that God intends for us to have as a community and as individuals. Thinking about an image of this, I remember this particular week in my life, not too terribly long ago, there were two images of two different people not too far away. One, I was walking down the street, and there was a homeless man there on the ground. A man made in the image of God, beloved by God, died for, and his life paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. He was laying there on the ground, largely ignored by the people around him, muttering out of his mind, was scene number one. And that very same week, just a few miles away, I remember a young man was also just out of joy going out on a street corner and he was playing the violin. And it was one of those moments, if you've ever seen somebody who loves music and who is good at it, he wasn't just playing the notes, he was in it. You know what I'm saying? And it was coming out of him, just this incredible life and joy. It wasn't just his instrument, it was coming out of his whole being. And I think of those two different images, and I think about what God has intended for us. God created us to flourish and to live, to have our lives so animated by the presence of God and the power of God and the joy and the wonder of God that it just comes out and you share it with other people. That's the life we were intended to live. So often we miss out on that. About 2,000 years ago, a man named Paul decided to write about his experience, about how to live life well, because he tried a lot of different things, you know. His two major avenues to try to summon up life in himself, one was intellectual pursuits, and he was brilliant. The other was he was a master at religious performance. He was a Jew, after all. And he practiced meticulously the Old Testament law. And one of the things he will testify about in this book is that try as he might, the conclusion he came to is the law pointed in the direction of life, but the law of God and no human activity or endeavor and no religious performance can produce life. So in this chapter and really this whole book, Paul testifies through his own experience of God about what really produces life. And in this particular chapter, in Romans chapter 8, he writes these words about what does it look like to find life given by God in a way that that makes us flourish in ways it comes out of our poor. By the way, Romans chapter 8 is such a beautiful, beautiful statement of the gospel of Jesus. The words and the imagery are so beautiful that did you know some years ago, the great composer, Johann Sebastian Bach, actually put it to music. There's a cantata called Jesus, My Joy. This is a very simplified picture of of one of the choral pieces, but it is a fantastic work. A cantata 
Picture this as as an orchestral work where you have a whole orchestra doing the music, but it is woven together with voices from the chorus, individual solos as well, to tell a story. A cantata tells a narrative story in music and song and voices. Let me share with you just some of the opening words. You probably, some of you might be able to read that, but I can't. I love the way he sets it. He will talk about the very verse, because it's Romans 8, but listen to how he roots it personally. Remember, hope is a person, not an idea. He starts by addressing the person. Listen to this opening of the cantata chorus. Jesus, my joy, pasture of my heart. Jesus, my adornment. Oh, how long, how long is my heart filled with attentiveness and longing for you? Lamb of God, my bridegroom, apart from you on the earth, there is nothing dearer to me. Rooted in the person, then he says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who wander not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Listen to this beautiful statement of what the meaning of Romans 8 is to him. Beneath your protection, I am free from the attacks of all my enemies. Even though Satan may track me down, let my enemy be exasperated. Jesus stands by me. Even if there is thunder and lightning, even if sin and hell spread terror, Jesus will protect me. It sings, doesn't it? It's helpful for me to kind of hear it that way. Even as I wrote much of the sermon, I was playing this cantata in the background. Because I I don't want to forget, sometimes I can come and read the Bible, especially the epistles and the letters of Paul, and I fall into the old mindset of, oh, what are the rules I've got to follow? It's not a rule book. It's a song of the hope of the world and what it looks like when that hope and that life steps in as opposed to anything else. So just for the next few weeks, I want to sit in the song. Because I believe in Romans chapter 8, God gives us an invitation and a window into the life we long for, how to live, but also even more importantly, how to encounter experientially the God who is life himself. Now to get there, we understand we started in the middle of the book, so we have to quickly understand where we came from. The therefore, as you've probably heard, Invites you to say what was before, right? So what, what, what happens right here? And in order for us to understand the beautiful music of Romans 8, you need to understand the sobering warning that comes before it. Sobering warning before this is that there is a force of obstacle to life in our world. There are some major obstacles that we all face to actually living the life God intends us to. In fact, in Romans chapter 7, right before this, you see some of the most chilling statements of the human condition anywhere in Scripture. Just for a moment, for us to understand the power of the music of Romans 8, we need to understand what he's been doing before. Let me give you two metaphors that come from the Scripture, two images that Paul is playing off of. The first one in Romans chapter 7 is the image of a body of death. Where do we get that from? At the end of Romans chapter 7, Paul is talking about the struggle that human beings, all of us, encounter. I call it, maybe you've heard me say this before, affectionately, the doo-doo passage. Have you heard this in Romans 7? I do do what I don't want to do, don't do what I do want to do. It's a doo-doo passage. (laughs) And we chuckle, and yet we know that experience, do we not? C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, he said, you don't even have to be a Christian to know this. Every human being that has ever lived has some standard for living 
that's just rooted in their being. It may be better or worse, may be warped in one way or another. We all, two, two great truths of the human life. We all have a standard for living, number one. And number two, none of us lives up to our own standard. We know that, do we not? Now, we have scripture that will talk about that more deeply, but you don't even have to be a Christian to understand. In the deepest part of our soul, we all have some standard, and none of us lives up to it, and we try to mask that or hide it in any number of ways. And Paul writes poetically in chapter 7 about this, I long to live this life, and yet I find this law inside of me battling me in a way that I'm doing things I don't want to do, and I'm not living the way I do want to do. But then he ends with this image that I think is particularly fitting for a letter to Roman Christians. I've taught on this before. I'm certain in Bible class, pretty sure I have in here. But let me remind this. Verse 24, he says in chapter 7, he says, who will save me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? What is that image? It's important to understand the obstacles that we face in life. First image is this body of death. Here's a way to think about it. We know this more commonly from this one. But the Romans were masters at finding ways to execute people in a symbolic way that said, don't rebel against Rome. We understand that, right? And so we know it from crucifixion. Do you know another way they would execute, especially rebellious people, in order to send a message, don't mess with Rome, is they would take the prisoner and they would tie to the prisoner a corpse. What would happen? They stay there, and as the corpse decays, it literally kills the body it's attached to. I'm sorry that's a graphic image, but that's what Paul says in Romans 7. And here's the image. What he is saying is, we all were born into a world where we have strapped onto our souls this thing called sin. It's not breaking rules. That's what happens. Those are sins. Sin goes all the way back to the beginning. It's kicking God off the throne of our lives. Or as we've said before, the declaration of independence from God. My way, my rules, I know what's best for my life. And Paul says, and the Bible says, and God says, here, the problem is your life was intended to run on God and his purposes and his ways. So when we live out of sin, which you cannot help but to do when you're born broken into this world, it's like we're walking around with a corpse tied around our soul. Is that image powerful? Second thing that's leading up to all of this, to understand the obstacle to living life that we face so that we can hear the music of Romans 8. If you ever read through the book of Romans before, if it's new to you, just appreciate this. If you've read before, I love just a few years ago, especially our Jewish scholars, help us see what Paul's been doing for chapters. From chapter 5 all the way up to chapter 8, Paul has been doing one major word picture from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Now, follow me on this, is really beautiful. If you haven't seen this before, it's really, it's really powerful. Especially in light of the fact we begun, begun, we began um, this uh, school year talking about the book of Exodus. Did you know the word picture, Romans 5, all the way through Romans 8, is the new Exodus? So watch this. Here's the way it goes. Because the major metaphor, and one metaphor is the body of death, the second metaphor is a tyrant that's out to oppress and keep you in slavery. What is that tyrant in the Old Testament? So follow it. Old Testament tyrant that enslaved people was Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh in Egypt. He was the tyrant who oppressed people with his power. Chapter 5 of the book of Romans is a metaphor of the new story of the Exodus. We are enslaved by a tyrant. In the Old Testament, it was Pharaoh. In the New Testament, it's sin. There is a force at work in your life 
that wants to pull you away from the passions and purposes of God. It is a tyrant that will enslave you. It's Romans chapter 5, starting in verse around 12 or so. All right, so that's the first thing that happens in the Exodus story. Second thing happens is, even though there's this tyrant, there's a more powerful God, so what does God do? God delivers them through what? Through waters of the Red Sea. Well, what does it say in Romans chapter 6? By the way, Paul's doing subtly here in Romans what he does explicitly in 1 Corinthians 10, if you want to go look at this. But he subtly says what? Okay, in the Old Testament, we're delivered from the tyrant through the waters of the Red Sea. In the New Covenant, we're delivered from the tyrant of sin by grace, through faith, through the waters of baptism. Isn't this kind of cool? Watch, it keeps on going. So in the Old Testament, after they're delivered through the Red Sea, then God gives them this incredible gift on Mount Sinai. It is the gift of the law. The law, the instruction of God for how to live life. And then in chapter 7 of the book of Romans, in the New Covenant, it talks about our relationship to the law. In fact, we inherit a new law in the New Covenant. The old law is a law that ultimately, it was pointing towards life, but the Old Testament law could not produce life. And Paul makes that really clear. Isn't that beautiful? Now it all leads up, and we're going to unpack this over the course of the next few weeks. It was beautiful. God doesn't finish there because they're out in the wilderness. So what does God do? He leads them. How did he lead them in the Old Testament? He led them with a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. How does he lead us today? Romans chapter 8. Do You know, I always do like a, a word study. See what's the most frequent word in a chapter? And, you know, I have to always ignore the first ones because it's and, but, the, and all that. The first one is and, duh. The rest are not even close. Spirit. All throughout Romans chapter 8. Isn't this beautiful? In the new covenant, we're led by the Spirit of God. It's so beautiful. So Romans chapter 5, all the way through chapter 8, don't you realize you're sitting in the Exodus story all over again, but it is so much more powerful. Now, all of that to say, these two metaphors are really important, these images. First of all, Paul says you're living with this body of death, this corpse tied all around you. Secondly, the other metaphor from the Exodus is we're living with this tyrant that wants to steal your life. All of this is to say, when we get to the beginning of Romans chapter 8, we're just on the edge of the precipice crying out saying, we need help. And then we come to one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. And what you find when you come into Romans chapter 8 with all of that as a background is that God gives this life, but you hear this first, life, the life of God is a gift the life of a God is a gift. Paul goes out of his way to say, you cannot produce it. Paul said, if anybody could have done it, it was me. I tried really hard. I was a meticulous religious person. There is no human effort that will produce life. Life comes as a gift. And he says one of the greatest statements in Scripture there is now. On the edge, when we got the corpse tied around us, and we got the tyrant beating down on our back. God stands above it all and says, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And in Jesus Christ, the corpse is disconnected and the tyrant is deposed. And it's a gift. And isn't it beautiful throughout this whole chapter how God goes out of his way to tell us the entire trinity is at work. 
Father God sends His Son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And again, as I told you, from beginning to end, the entire chapter is saturated with God's greatest gift, the gift of His own presence in His Holy Spirit at work in our lives. It is a gift from beginning to end. I love the way one writer puts it. He said, think about this. The gift of life is all about opening ourselves up to a greater experience of life and relationship. That's what life comes down to, right? A greater experience of life and relationship with God, with each other, even the world in which we find ourselves. Here's a way to think about it. This, this difference between living life in the flesh, living this spirit-filled life. It, it's a silly analogy, but I love the way one writer put it when they said, look, think about this. There are all sorts of forms when you look around the world. There are, there are places where things are alive, but they're still dead to greater experiences of life. You understand? There are things that are alive, but they're missing out on fullness of life. Let's just think about, I know it's a silly analogy, but think about plants and animals, both of which are alive, but are missing out on the richest part of life. So a plant, plants are alive, right? You can see them grow and you can feed them and you can talk to them, you can do all sorts. But here's the thing, a plant can't fetch a ball. <laughs> plant can't run away an intruder coming into your house. Plant can't do that. Well, you say, well, an animal can do that, right? An animal can't. Animal can do that. Animal can play with you and fetch a ball and interact some. Animal can protect you in some ways and run off an intruder. But you know, I was thinking about... Uh, I saw him this morning. I don't know where you're sitting. Al and Mary Jolly, who have been married for 75 years. You know what a plant or an animal cannot do? They cannot experience the depth of covenant love between a man and a wife throughout the years with God at the center of it all, right? A plant or an animal cannot experience the joy and the wonder of music or the words that I just read. And then when they're put to the giftedness of God, feeding it through some, they can't appreciate poetry or a great song or a great, they can't experience all that. Do you understand it's possible to be alive and yet miss out and be dead to this great experience of life? Paul says the gift of God is life in the Spirit. Life in flow with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in ways that we are dead to outside of Christ. And he says there's nothing you can do to access that life on your own. Wretched man that I am, he says, who will save me from this body of death? But the next line is, but thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't you love the language in Romans 8? He said what the law was powerless to do. God did by sending his own son. I know you've heard it before, but hear it in your soul. Whatever was necessary for you to live life to the fullest and be in connection with God and each other and the world, God has already done in Christ. It is a gift. So maybe the Holy Spirit wanted to, you to hear this because what I'm about to say is exactly what Garrett said. What do you do with that gift? Some of you here, I invite you to receive it. There's some people who have not received the gift of God's life. You're still trying to do it with your own juice. I'm not just talking about getting baptized. I'm talking about the baptism of surrender by grace through faith to say, I cannot do it, God. But you can. Some of you have never done that before. I invite you to receive the gift. It's a gift. You have to do nothing but receive it. He will not force it upon you. 
God is a God of freedom. He will offer you the gift, but you must receive it and open the package. And, as Garrett said, I also say, some of you have the gift and you've received it, and it's getting dusty. Or you hear the enemy's lies. Hear again the gift of God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Whatever you are powerless to do, God has already done in the sending of his own son. It's a gift. Receive it. Stop trying to earn it. You can't. Life, God's true life, is a gift. But you know, Paul also says something here as you go on. Life and the life of God is also a choice. Now, this is odd, isn't it? Life is a gift. You don't do anything to earn it. But he says, when you are in Christ, life is also a choice. How is that the case? We talked about this before when we did the book of Ephesians. Let me come back to this because Paul does it in a slightly different way here. Three different kinds of people. There's the natural person. That's person outside of Christ. Go look at 1 Corinthians 2, I believe. The person without the Spirit cannot accept the things that come from the Spirit of God because they're spiritually discerned. They don't make sense. They're foolishness. We cannot generate life on our own. It has to come with a gift. But when you're in Christ, there are still two choices you can make. You have the gift of God. You have the Spirit of God. But in Christ, you can still live two different kinds of ways. One, Paul calls life generated or moving towards with a mindset of the flesh or life in the Spirit. You can say, no, the flesh is non-Christian. No, the flesh is a Christian living like the natural person. Right? By the way, I've said this many times. Let me say it again because it's so easy for us to get tripped up with this. Flesh does not mean physical. So it is not a distinction between there's the spiritual life, which is this little spirit that floats away one day, and that's the important stuff, and this body is just evil and the world's bad, and that doesn't matter. No, that's called Plato, and we're not Platonists, we're Christians. All right, so here's the thing. Life in the spirit, just quickly so you understand, life in the spirit happens in the body. You get that? Life in the spirit has to happen in the body. The spirit is always spiriting bodies. That's what happens in Genesis chapter 2. He takes dirt. He takes a body and spirits it. He breathes into it the ruach, the spirit of life, and being happens. The spirit of God is always happening bodies or bodies. So flesh is not physical. Flesh is buying into the fallen, rebellious world and mindset. Flesh is living by your gut, your instinct. By living by what you think is best. It's living like the natural person. Does that make sense? And the things that fire up the natural person, as opposed to the things that fire up the Spirit of God. There are two choices. We can live in the flesh, or we can live in the Spirit. And Paul says your invitation in Christ is to actually live into the life of the Spirit. You have a choice. It goes all the way back to Romans chapter 6. There's one of Paul's favorite little words for this. Depending on your translation... He'll say, consider, Romans 6, 11, consider yourself dead. Now, this is something you do, right? Only God can make you alive in Christ. But once you're alive in Christ, then you get to consider yourself dead to the old ways and alive in Christ. Or, I like the good southern way, some translations say, reckon. Reckon yourself dead to sin and reckon yourself alive to Jesus. Does that make sense? That is something we do. We live as if our lives are animated by the one who is animating our lives, the Spirit of God. Does that make sense? Now, we have the choice to feed the flesh or to feed the Spirit. And what he says is, don't feed the flesh. It's not because, oh, okay, you do all these things, you go to hell. 
that, that may ultimately happen, but that's not the point. You're, you're, you're living like the homeless man on the street when you were intended to play the violin. Does that make sense? You're cutting yourself off from the life of the Spirit of God. Don't live according to the flesh. It's the image of this. Um, I love the way Dallas Willard puts this. He's a great unpacker of the practice of the spiritual life. So he talks about this. When you're in Christ, listen to this. He said, once the new life begins to enter our soul, when you've come into Christ, we have the responsibility and the opportunity of ever more fully focusing our whole being on God's life and wholly orienting ourselves towards it. Right? So when we come to Christ, listen, before you're in Christ, you don't have a choice. You, whether you know it or not, you're walking around with a corpse tied to your soul and you're living under a tyrant's rule. Now in Christ, you have a choice to cut off that corpse and to walk away from the tyrant or not. But we have to choose it and that's our job. And this is his last line that he says is powerful. Right? We can increasingly orient our being to God's life. And listen, he said, this is our part and God will not do it for us. Do you hear that? This is our part, and God in his freedom isn't going to do it for us. He will give us the spirit. He will give us the power. This is why it's so powerful. I've heard my whole life, yes, Jesus died for my sins and my wrongdoing, but it's not just that. He also died to empower us to increasingly live the way God intended. That's what it says here. It says, because the Spirit of God's in our life, the righteous requirements of law might be met, listen to this, in us. It's not just that he substituted for us in checkbox. No, the Spirit of God empowers us increasingly over the course of our lives to live closer and closer to the heart of God, and we become more and more alive. Isn't that beautiful? Now, this is so important. The choice, remember it's a gift, but it's also choice. Listen to me. I don't want to miss this. The choice is still grace. <laughs> Do you get that? The choice is still the grace of God. We're always responding to God's initiative. We don't earn any of this, but we do have a role to play to respond. That's why Paul will use the language of keeping in step with the Spirit elsewhere. Spirit's there. Do I dance with Him or not? Do I move with Him or not? Do I follow Him or not? That's the invitation. Second thing I would say here, it's a choice that's by grace. Listen, it takes time. It takes practice. That's why we fail. We fall on our face and we get up and try again and we move again. That's why you're not defined by your performance, but we grow into it. Hear me. It takes time. And that's why I don't like the word spiritual disciplines. I mean, it's a great word. It's practices. Spiritual, like we practice the spirit of God. And over the course of time, we grow more and more in this practice. I, I like the way one image I saw that said, it's like if you, if you take a shirt and you throw it in to get washed. How does that wash? Well, there's like fibers and fabric here, right? So the soap and the water come into the fibers and little by little, it pulls it away as it's saturated in what is cleaning it. You realize life in the Spirit of God is like that. You're in Christ already. But He invites you to grow in such a way that your life's so saturated with the Spirit of God, it disconnects you more and more with the old ways of life and connects you more and more with what will light up your soul and the world. Isn't that beautiful? Again, I... I love the way another great spiritual classic talks about this. This is, this is what they say. The literal truth is that Christ, through his word, removes the old routines in the heart and mind. So think about this. What does it mean to live in the spirit? You distance yourself more and more with the old routines, the old thought patterns of the flesh, of the corpse and the tyrant. 
The old routines of thought, feeling, action, and imagination. In their place, this is God's work, he puts something else. God's thoughts, God's attitudes, God's belief, God's ways of seeing and interpreting things. God's words. He washes out our minds. And in the place of confusion and falsehood or hatred or suspicion and fear, he brings clarity, truth, love, confidence, and hopefulness. Isn't that beautiful? Hear me, this isn't legalism. It is an ongoing baptism of surrender to say, Jesus, would you continually, and my mind is a mess, my life is a mess, but would you keep cleansing it? Would you keep moving more and more and more into the heart of Jesus? Isn't that beautiful? It is a practice over the course of time. Lastly, quickly, what, what is the goal of all of this? The goal is God wants to build a life together with us. And I like to think about it as shared experiences. A life of shared experiences between all of us as his people and the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's building a life together. We know that's what makes life life, isn't it? Over the course of time, it's the moments. It's the shared experiences we have. That's why I had to put this up because they're there right now in Colorado. Our youth group is on wilderness track and a bunch of leaders there investing in their lives. And this is after they braved the rapids of going into the uh, whitewater rafting. By the way, it's so brilliant. People who are experienced in guiding and leading someone, like the Spirit of God, but you see it in people like this. I did not even realize, Monty is so brilliant. We are so gifted to have Monty here. When we were talking, like, I just thought they were out having fun the first day doing whitewater rafting. Does anybody know why they do that? This is brilliant. Yeah, it's fun, but that's not the point. They're getting them acclimated to the higher elevation without them even knowing it. Isn't that cool? So they go out and have fun, and they're interacting, they're working, and they're tired, but they're not climbing the mountain yet. And they're getting used to being in the, in the climb. Isn't that powerful? And they're getting used to work together, depending on each other as a team. That's what God does for us. Of the course of our lives, he brings us into these shared experiences with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in such a way we build life together. And over the course of time, practicing the life of God, it becomes more and more and more who we are. And we're playing the violin of the soul on the street for our joy and the joy of those around us. I love the example of a guy some years ago, 400 years ago. A guy named uh, what, Nelson, what's his, Herman, Nicholas Herman. Sorry, Nicholas Herman. This old guy, it's not the most impressive sword in the world, but he, he was a world, uh, world, a war veteran back in the 17th century. The Thirty Years' War, it was called. And after the war ended, you know, often veterans will not know what to do. They lose a sense of purpose or whatever. And he was, he was walking one day, describes the experience of going out and walking, and he, he just felt in his life that corpse and that tyrant. I mean, he was not a Christian, but it was a moment in his life he was just feeling like purposelessness and hopelessness and death all around him. And the strangest thing in the world God used to give him a symbol of hope. He came up in the wintertime to a tree that had no fruit and no leaves. I think in the world, why in the world would that be a symbol of hope? Let's think about it. In the wintertime, he saw a tree without fruit and without leaves. Why would that be hopeful? Because winter ends and spring is coming. 
And God used that image of the barren tree as a symbol of hope to say, don't count on yourself anymore. That's what it looks like when you live under the tyrant's rule and with a corpse strapped around you. But look to the spring of Jesus Christ's life and you give your hope to me and it will change everything. So he committed his entire life to Jesus. Now, when I say that, you might think, okay, great, he became a great preacher and he built great things or he he went around and did mission work all over the place. No, he had two main jobs for the rest of his life. One was he repaired shoes. (laughs) And the other is he worked in the kitchen. Important task, humble task. Fix people's shoes. He fixed them something to eat. But he wanted to commit his life in such a way that God would be a part even of that. And he wanted to give his life so completely to God, one of the practices they would often do back then is they would change their name. And he changed his name to Lawrence of the Resurrection. What a great name. But we know him as Brother Lawrence. And maybe you've seen this book before. It's called The Practice of the Presence of God. Tiny little book, but for 400 years has testified to the life of a man who literally practiced setting his mind on the Spirit of God every day of his life in such a way he would grow more and more and more into that. Now hear me, it was not a quick journey for him. Remember, he lived a natural life in condemnation, but you know, even after he became a Christian, he says for four years, for four years, he felt damned is his word. I felt damned every day. He felt condemned. He felt judged, even though there's no condemnation in Christ. But he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to set my heart to practice the presence of God. By the way, it's really annoying if you read this book. It's beautiful, it's powerful, and it's really annoying because I'm searching for the answer the whole time. How do you practice the presence of God? How do you practice the presence of God? And I realized after I read it like twice that the title is the book. (laughs) Do you hear me? He practiced the presence of God. (laughs) He set his mind on the Spirit of God. Listen to me. No matter what he was doing. So famously, I'll paraphrase it, but famously, he became known as the man who could experience the wonder and the joy and the presence of God just as much peeling potatoes in the kitchen as he did in worship services and the Lord's Supper. That's what he became known for. I did find one little secret in the book. I read it and read it and read it, and then this jumped off, line jumped off page to me. By the way, he didn't write a book. It was just letters. One of the letters he wrote said, after practicing the presence of God for 10 to 20 years, got to a place where I felt a continual sense of God's presence for the most part. It takes time. You're already in Christ. Here's the invitation though. Set your mind on the glorious, wondrous life and passions and desires of the Spirit of God. And over the course of time, it will saturate our souls and it will come out of our lives like the music of Romans 8 in the first place. I love the way my teacher put it. They said, you know, there were a lot of spiritual leaders back then There were preachers and popes, there were ministers and elders, and nobody remembers the names of them. 400 years later, they're reading the letters of a dude who worked in the kitchen and repaired shoes. Look at a room full of people. They're not going to remember presidents. They'll remember. It'll be a history book. But the people that make an impact in the world are people in this room and elsewhere in the body of Christ who say, God, fill me up. Fill me up with your Holy Spirit. Let me live life with a mindset on the Spirit, and watch the music play. Father God, that's our prayer. With our whole being, please continue to take off that corpse of the flesh and the world 
And Father, please beat down the tyrants that want to lie to us and slave us. And Father, open us up more and more and more to practice individually and collectively the presence of your glorious Holy Spirit who leads us day in and day out, just like you led the Israelites through the wilderness into your promised life. Father, we don't just want to receive that. We want to share it. We want to play this music for the world. Empower us to do that for the glory of your name. In the name of resurrected Christ, we pray. Amen.